Uh, Andy Gibbs is going to be sharing this morning. Some of you may know I'm uh, currently seconded for a day a week to do some work with the association, and uh, Andy's really graciously and kindly been supporting in all kinds of ways. He's been a massive blessing at the Blessed Discipleship Group as well. Uh, so uh, Andy's going to come and share in, in just a moment. But before he does, we're going to read from uh, John chapter 10 again, words that probably most of us now have got engraved on our hearts. We've heard them so often, uh, both here and in small groups. But John chapter 10, uh, and then I and he's going to come and minister to us. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He leads his own sheep out by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus was using this figure of speech, but they didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is good news, isn't it? That wasn't a trick question. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when they see the wolf coming, they abandon the sheep and run away. And the wolf is left to attack it and scatter it. The person runs away because they're a hired hand. They care nothing about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, hallelujah. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Andy, can I pray for you? Can we welcome Andy as he comes to to minister today? Great. Let's let's pray for you. Thank you. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you today that these are not our words. These are not our hopes or our promises. These are your words, Jesus. This is your promise. This is your hope. That's such a gift to us today that we do not have to make this up as we go along. We do not have to hope in ourselves. Lord, we thank you, God, for those that you called to 
uh, unfold, to explain, to share, to apply your word. And we thank you so much for Andy. Uh, Lord, we thank you for bringing him here. We thank you for the ways in which he serves here already. And I just want to pray, Father, that by your spirit now, you'd stir up in him that gift, uh, that all that you've laid on his heart as he's been preparing would, would just come together, Father, and that we'd hear from you today. Lord, we want to be your sheep that know your voice, that recognize a stranger's voice and run, but who will run to you. So, Lord, would you use this time to shape our relationship with you, to shape our understanding of you, to shape our lives for you, and use Andy today for your glory. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Bless you. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I must admit, when I was preparing for this, I wasn't initially sure where I was going with it. Uh, because I had the brief, I had the verses, and I was looking at the title and thinking, I'm not 100% certain the way this is going to work. There we go. Save moving the camera. We're going to move the lectern. Um, always works better, I find, and it's a lot smoother. Uh, I was a bit confused, and, and part of the reason was, I think, was this image of a sheepfold that, that John used last week. It, it kind of sparked something in me. Because we've got all these words in these verses about the thief climbing over the wall. And I've got to be honest, I looked at that and I thought, yeah, I could climb over that. That is not a difficult wall to climb over. It, why is this such a surprise? And it's pretty visible as well. And, and that story started to, to echo and rattle around my mind. And then another story came to mind from last yeah, last month, where um, I don't know if you picked it up in the newscast, but um, there was a guy called Adam Lockwood, 21 years old. He's made a bit of a name of himself for climbing things. And this is a picture of him at the top of the Shard in London, where on the, I think it was the 24th of September, no, sorry, the 4th of September, he climbed the 1,017 feet for those who work in Imperial, the 310 meters for those who work in Metric, and for those who work in neither, the 87 stories of the Shard, and stood on two little bits of metal at the very top. Now, this might be hard to kind of understand the scale of it, but I was in London a couple of weeks ago, and my wife and I, we had the, the privilege of having a meal up the Shard, and I took a photo as we waited for the bus. And um, that's a photo of us as the bus arrives, looking up at the Shard. But, but even then, it's a bit hard to kind of envisage, so I thought, well, I know, what I'll do is I'll zoom in on that very top bit, and that is where Adam is standing. But my favorite bit in the whole of it is if you read the BBC report, uh, there was a guy called Paul Curfee and his uh, partner, Tricia, and they were staying in a room on the 40th floor of the Shard. So the Shard's got offices, it's got restaurants, but it's also got a hotel as part of it. And he said at 6 a.m. they saw Adam climbing past their window, and he smiled and gave him a wave. And, <laughs> but this is the best bit. My partner thought I had pulled all the stops out and managed to get a guy to bring a box of milk tray for her birthday. <laughs> Who in their right mind would think I'm 40 floors up? Yeah, of course somebody's going to do that for me. But you see, 
the reason for this, and the reason this was kicking around my head, is I've done some background reading already, and I, I know this is a village setting rather than a field setting. So some of the commentators were saying, oh, when he's talking about sheepfold, he actually means courtyard, and when he's talking about gatekeeper, they actually mean porter, and there's all this stuff, and I thought I was going to whiz around all of these different things about how easy it was to climb over and how it wouldn't have been easy, but then it suddenly just struck me that actually... It's not about how hard or how easy it is to climb into the sheepfold. It's talking about the nature of those that do climb in, wherever they come from. Uh, so, I want to give us a bit of context, I guess, because that will help me, at least, to unpack where I think God is taking us. Because Jesus is painting a picture here of him as the true leader of Israel. It's, it's real king as well as the Messiah, and, and there's this well-worn Old Testament language wherever the prophets and, and others refer to shepherds, they're always talking about leaders. It's rarely talking about somebody who's actually out in a field, apart from David before. He was called to be a leader, but that bit doesn't count really. But you've got this stuff, you can see it in Psalm 77. You led your people like a flock. Or Ezekiel 34, where it talks about having one shepherd appointed over Israel, and it'll be their servant David. Although, of course, David was well dead by the time that Ezekiel was kicking around. But it's talking about something going on in God's people where shepherds and leaders, it's the same kind of nature, the same kind of characteristics. But you get God as the perfect shepherd and the people as the imperfect shepherds. And some of those prophets then, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel again, start to speak and say, woe to the shepherds of my people, because they are not feeding my sheep. They are leading them astray. They're, they're taking them in wrong directions. They're being self-serving. They're looking out for their own ideals. And that could be a really depressing message. But... There is always this offer of hope that seems to come through, this offer of hope where, where a new shepherd will gather the scattered flock together, where a new shepherd will, will pull them all together in this one fold, and they will be safe. So that means, I think, that, that if we're trying to understand where Jesus is coming from with these pictures and, and who the thief is and who the shepherd is, then we need to maybe just look back a little bit. So we're going to read a little bit more of the Bible. If you put your Bibles away, please get them back out. You're going to need to hang on to them because, A, you always need to check out what I'm saying. You should do it for anybody. Make sure that we're handling the Word of God properly, but also it means that you can read faster than I can speak. You might get caught by the spirit into a thought and you might ignore everything else I say but if it's God's voice you're following hallelujah listen to him he's far more eloquent than I ever will be so John chapter 9 verse 1 to 3 the I think yes the CSB the Christian Standard Bible is where I'm going to go for for today for my translation I think the idea of using different translations is really helpful because it opens our eyes to how Original languages have been interpreted. So John 9 says, As he was passing by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples said to him, or asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' response is, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about 
so that God's works may be displayed in him. And then jumping forward a few verses to verse 14, talking again about this picture of what happened after Jesus healed this man. They pull him into the synagogue to question him. These Pharisees, they want to know. And it says, The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was division among them. We're going to buzz forward another eight verses to John 9, 24. So they pushed him out of the synagogue. They kicked him out of the synagogue and then they called him back in again and said, so a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, was a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. John 9.34. These are the Pharisees speaking to the man who was born blind. You were born entirely in sin. And you were trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. So what does that mean for all of us then? As we start to think about this message, what does it actually mean? Well, I think this is a, a tale, or the bit I'm looking at is really a tale of one shepherd and two thieves. The first, thief the first, is the devil, the Satan, the, the accuser, the, yeah, the deceiver, the twister. And we see that, don't we? we got, we're in this run-up to Halloween where there's darkness seems to be everywhere, uh, although I was sort of shown the world's smallest pumpkin, I think. Somebody must have had it in a little uh, biome to make it that small. It was tiny. It was very cute. And my wife actually bought a pumpkin, and I said, what the heck are you doing? But she's cut the center out of it and put some plants in it. It's a really nice kind of autumn planter just to sit in our porch. It's very pretty. I was very impressed. Uh, As you might guess, creative stuff is not really my kind of bag. But the devil, the deceiver, when we first kind of meet them, named as the Satan, the accuser, it's in the book of Job. And you get this picture of the heavenly court gathering together and, and, and all the kind of God's servants gather, including the one called the accuser, the Hasatan, the Satan. And God says, where have you been? He said, I've been roaming everywhere throughout the earth, to and fro. And Satan comes up and says to God, does Job fear God for nothing? And the basic story is this accusation is made as, well, Job's life is cushy. Everything is sorted. He, he has everything. He has riches. He has family. He has property. His life is great, so of course he trusts God. But he then says, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and surely he will curse you to his face. And isn't that true of when we see the devil at work in our lives? There's there's always this sense of undermining. There's always this this sense of damaging, of of breaking, where where we hear these little whispers that that come into our our heads and that you're not good enough. 
You're not holy enough. You're, you're, not, you're not anything enough. Because that's one of the devil's main ways of getting at us, is to, to try and undermine our faith by saying, whatever faith you've got, it is insufficient. It's just not going to meet the mark. And he does that as well because he's also a deceiver. You know, that first, very first time we meet the serpent, what are the words that come out of the snake's mouth? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Isn't that wonderful, that, that, that sneaky little way of approaching and kind of going, did God really say that you need to honour your mother and father? Or, or did God really say that you should be kind? Did God really say? Introducing that doubt, that, that subtle twisting, particularly of good things. And, and we see it so clearly, don't we, when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And he keeps on coming out. And, and eventually the devil resorts to quoting scripture. So he took him to Jerusalem. This is Luke 4, if you want to look it up. Had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Taking the very words that we hold as, as vital, life-giving, and twisting their meaning... Go on, test God. And Jesus said, it is also said, do not test the Lord your God. It's what we find all the time, isn't it? We get these things coming in where self-serving, deceitful things are going on and it's twisting our understanding of Scripture. It's twisting the way that we live because there is a thief, a thief that roars around us always present, seeking to devour, seeking to, to eat us up and pull us away. Peter says this, doesn't he? Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So we have an enemy, a thief, who is always present, always prowling around, always seeking your worst for his pleasure, eager to rob you of whatever hope, happiness, faith, and peace that you might hold. And it would be great if we could stop there, because we could sit there and go, great, fine, that's the devil, I can resist him, firm in the faith, and everything will be just brilliant. The problem is there's a second thief, I think, in this story. Because I think it's the thief that Jesus is mainly talking about here. In this story, in this context, the thief of the Pharisees who have clambered over the wall. And I have a sneaking suspicion, in fact, more than a sneaking suspicion, that it's probably talking about us too. You see... Jesus is aiming these words at the people to try and explain his response to the blind man's healing. He's trying to say how the Pharisees, in throwing the man out of the synagogue, had made a massive mistake. That, that they'd 
viewed this healing as something as having sinfulness at its root because it happened on the Sabbath and it was done by making mud and that was work and therefore you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. So, so his healing, miraculous though it was, led to him being condemned and being thrown out, being thrown away. And that's just like Job's friends. If you read the book of Job, it's a really long book. It's quite a depressing book as well, not as bad as Amos, but it's still there where Job has everything swept away from him. And then friends gather around him, and the only wise thing these friends do is they sit in silence for seven days, just wearing sackcloth ashes and and mourning with him. And then they start to speak, and they start to say, Job, repent, it must be sin in your life that has caused you to suffer like this. Because God only blesses those who are pure of heart. And Job goes... Nope. Nope. I think I've followed God's law perfectly, as well as I can anyway. And I've confessed, and I even give sacrifices for my children because I'm so concerned about them. And his friends keep on banging on. No, repent, repent. One of my favorite verses comes towards the end of the book where God speaks to Job and says, pray for them that they may be forgiven. And Job does, and they are. Hallelujah. I think this is it. This is the key focus of this verse for us. The thief that clambers over the wall is all too often the second thief rather than the first. Because those verses, John 10.10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. I love this translation for this. Abundance. This is about having life that that overwhelms, that pours out, that, that flows through. Not life that's in the small, contained, held in. So I don't think that, I don't think that Jesus is here speaking anywhere about some existential or metaphoric danger that might come from the devil prowling around. I think he is saying, actually, when you look at how the Pharisees operated, church, be different. You are not meant to be like them. My life, hearing my voice, following my words, well, that brings life in its abundance. Following anything else leads to killing, destruction, and stealing. So Jesus is looking really at the behavior of the Pharisees as leaders of God's people and saying, I'm going to hold a mirror up and critique you. I'm going to show you what you're like through the use of a picture so that you can hear and change your ways. That true fellowship with God is is life-giving. It's just amazing. And what you're doing... Pharisees, what you're doing is bringing about spiritual poverty. It's, it's bringing broken lives out. It's, it's, it's damaging disciples. Sort yourselves out. True shepherds protect and feed and guide. Now, you might all still be thinking, fantastic. John, this is all down on you, mate. Maybe Tim. Maybe the elders and the elite deacons as well. You know, it, it, it's them. It, this is about leaders. Yeah, 
But there's that really awkward verse, isn't it, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture. Ah. Looks like you're off the hook, John, but you're kind of still on it, but we've just joined you on that hook. Because we have to remember the Pharisees initially were trying to protect God's people. They were trying to prevent them going back into exile. So they, so they built up all these rules and traditions to, to try and make certain that if something went wrong, if you transgressed their rules, you didn't break God's law. So therefore, the people of God were always okay. They wouldn't be exiled again. But that clogged things up. That, that bound things up. That that produced slaves. It didn't produce freedom. The people of God, the leaders of God's people who had, had been so often set free from slavery became the enslavers themselves. They became the thieves climbing over the wall, seeking to kill and destroy. They were so hung up on making a little bit of mud with spit in the palm of the hand that they said, he's a sinner. Instead of recognizing God at work, bringing miraculous healing. Why do we do it? I don't know. They'd set up rules for everything. Kind of reminds me of being a Baptist at times, if I'm honest. We were praying out the back, and there was a little joke made, and so we better take that to a church meeting. And you kind of go, but yes, that's, that's kind of the way that we, we operate, isn't it? Because rules make us feel safe. We like it when there are rules. We like it when there are structures, because it means that we know what we're doing. And yet, life in its abundance not rules and regulations. You don't have people kind of going, I'm sorry, you do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defense if you do not mention when questioned. Uh, so can you just, just tell to the diaconate why? Why were you doing washing up and buying a newspaper on a Sunday morning? But we like it, aren't we? Because that's where we seem to, to feel safe. And yet Christ says the safety is not in the rules. The safety is in hearing the voice of God and following. If you think, think back to the Garden of Eden. How many rules did God set for a brand new creation that he called very good? One. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hands up how many humans broke those rules. All in existence. It's perfect, isn't it? Even, even the slightest offer that we're given... There's a rule there so we can step over it. We do it. We've been stuffing up since the creation. And we continue to. And I think we continue to because we keep on hearing that little voice saying, did God really say? And whenever we go our own way, we fail to listen to God's word. We, we fail to hear his voice and we... We become a wall-clambering community instead of a front-door-entering family. I don't know why, but we do. Whenever we choose to, to find some arbitrary rules and to, to break somebody down over them, to, 
to shame them, to judge them, to, to bring in our opinion as the right opinion, well, we follow in those pharisaical footsteps, and we do become rock clamberers. So Jesus says clearly, doesn't he, if we hear his voice and we follow, we get abundant life. It's really simple. God speaks. We do life abundant. I'm not sure I can make it any simpler than that. It, it is just that. And this isn't about material gain. This isn't about kind of, uh, God speaks, I follow, I get a private jet. <laughs> Be nice, wouldn't it? But no, that's not what it is. Because if that was the case, then Jesus wouldn't have lived in poverty. His followers wouldn't have lived in poverty. The, the whole that we see of Jesus' life, the, the most perfect, in fact, the perfect liver out of God's word, the follower of God's voice, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we were reminded, I don't want to do this, Jesus says, but not my will, but yours. Poverty and yet abundant life. Life that was so enriching, engrossing, in, in empowering. Because Jesus didn't sit within those rules. He didn't follow those human-made rules that said, do this, but don't do that. You know, that mud, no, that's not on. Instead, he abundantly had things like fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It says in Galatians, the law is not against such things. Abundant fruit. Fruit that should grow in all of our lives if we believe. And that's what the purpose of church is, isn't it? Is to, to help those fruit to be grown. I've, I did some studies uh, a way back uh, at the beginning of lockdown where lots of people were saying, you should not meet online because it is not truly meeting. And I, I wrestled with what that meant. I went to Hebrews 10. I was, you know, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And, and lots of people are saying, see, it says gather. It says gather, so it means that you must be all in the same place, otherwise church doesn't happen. It's not church. Coswallop. <laughs> I could be really technical and say the Greek for gather there is not ecclesia, but it's episynagoge. You know, it's something completely different. It's a unique using of it. But, but the thing about church and the thing you can achieve online, I believe, not as well, but you can, is three things. Church is meant to help us. The family of faith is meant to help us keep holding tightly to the hope we affirm, to hang on to our faith and to see our faith grow and, and take over our whole lives as we see abundant life. Secondly, to keep motivating us to, to love and good works. Love motivated good works, pouring out because of the abundant life that we have. And then keep meeting to encourage each other. And the reason when I read that, I started going, hang on, it says encourage. 
And then it says encourage again. And then it says encourage a third time. And it keeps on talking about encouragement. And is that what we expect when we gather as believers, that all we're going to hear is encouragement? That's not to say not live holy, but to be encouraged towards living holy, rather than me as I came here this morning demonstrating some of the fruit of the Spirit, talking to some Mormon believers, it's a bit dull to park on a blind bend. Those are the words that came out of my mouth, and I said them, and I regretted them. Because I'm sitting there going, how does that really help? Because the guy put on his jacket and went, eh, and walked off. Maybe if I'd said something like, I'm really sorry, but can you not park there? Because whenever people park there, I'm forced out into the road around a blind bend, and I've almost hit a few people. Do you think you can find somewhere safer to park? You can park in front of my house if you want. It's number 21, just around the... That would have been a very different message, but no. I allowed the world to take over. It's a bit dull. I still can't believe I said it. But that's what came out. And that kind of life is not the life that God has called us to. We're called to this life of encouragement, of, of helping each other see the fruit grow, see, see the, the wonders of God at work in us as we all stumble through these trials and tribulations, as we all go through the struggles of life. Because the gospel message of Christ is about abundance. It's about fullness. It's, it's God, the Holy Spirit, transforming us to become more and more like him, to be more Christ-like, to to take every single fiber of my being and make it like Jesus. I thought I hadn't been very Baptist so far, so I thought I'd better try some alliteration. So I've got here that the life of Christ is a triune transformation through transitory trials and tribulations towards totally teeming tenure in the eternal kingdom of God. <sighs> Hopefully that has Baptisted me out for the next few months, you know. But the thing is, it's true, isn't it? It's... It's more about seeing the fruits of the Spirit grow in our lives. It's, it's about living out a redemptive existence with all that we meet. It's, it's about treating everyone as we might expect to be treated. Everyone. It, it's it's that, that wonderful thing, isn't it? When fingers are pointed, one goes forward, three come back. It's about transforming the only individual that I have any control over me. I can say what I want to say. I can do what I want to do, but I can't make change in others. But I can make change in me. It means celebrating truth. It means celebrating honesty, disavowing, uh, my favorite word, dissembling, dissemblation, that, that wonderful deceitful thing that we do to try and make what we're doing look good when we know it really isn't. And it's costly, and it's painful, and it's challenging, and it's refreshing, and it's empowering, and it's invigorating. This journey of faith that we've been called to, this abundant walk with Christ, because it will take us into the places that we don't want to go and see them transformed. It will, it will take us into the depths of our own souls, to the bits that we would rather hide and see them changed eternally. It's a step of faith, but it's a step of faith that does not leave us exposed. It's a step of faith that assures us that if we hear God's voice and we follow, then nothing in all of creation can take away the love of God through Christ Jesus.
It's that simple. God speaks. We follow. Life is abundant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that our only hope of doing anything remotely like this comes not from relying on ourselves, but from relying fully on you. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit of God, we pray, help us in our daily walk to hear your voice, to see you, Jesus, in front of us, beckoning us on, and like a good flock to follow. And Father, we ask that as we do this, would you give us that abundance of life? May your name be glorified, and may your kingdom grow. Amen. <coughs>